Thank you very much. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and may the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, for Christians around the world, uh, Easter and the Easter season is a time of celebration, of course, beginning with Easter Day. Um, some churches hold an Easter vigil on, in the last few hours of what we call Holy Saturday, um, and they meet in dimly lit churches with candles uh, and no music, uh, and gradually as the service progresses, music is introduced uh, and uh, the candles are extinguished because the lights are brought on fully and the bells start to ring and there's an air of celebration. And then sometimes at sunrise, uh, in various parts of the world, people will gather, uh, especially if they have a nice high spot where there's likely to be a good view of a sunrise, and they have what we call a sunrise service, the joy of worshipping in the open air. Some churches hold an early morning communion service and have breakfast together, the only Sunday in the year when they would do that. And inside our churches, we have joyful music and uh, lilies and uh, sometimes our empty crosses uh, as here last Sunday our empty crosses are transformed by daffodils and over the centuries Christians have found many uh, imaginative ways of creating an explosion of joy and celebration to mark the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and uh, the good news that the powers of hell and the powers of death have not had the last word in the story of Jesus but of course, the first Easter did not begin with a great explosion of joy and celebration. The morning of Easter day began with the disciples being simply very surprised and in disbelief as the women and a couple of the disciples discovered the tomb where the body of Jesus had been laid was empty. And then bewilderment as they tried to understand what was going on. And only later, a sense of joy and wonder because they realized that Jesus had risen from the dead, was alive, and was with them. And in our Gospel reading that we just heard, John records for the first time that Jesus appeared to his disciples uh, as a group. And the account begins on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. I think that fear was very understandable. You think about it, the disciples lived in a country which was a very religious country, but where God's messengers had sometimes been dealt with in a very barbaric kind of way. The disciples themselves, with the three years that they'd spent with Jesus, had witnessed the, the death, the beheading of John the Baptist, the one who'd come to prepare the way for Jesus. And only three days ago, they'd watched Jesus arrested by a detachment of soldiers and uh, a group of Jewish officials, um, and then tried by a kangaroo court, condemned to death like a criminal, and hung on a cross, suffering one of the most horrendous forms of torture that uh, mankind has ever devised. The disciples were well-known followers of Jesus. They traveled with him in Galilee and into Judea and into the city of Jerusalem. They'd been seen with him. So if you'd been seen with somebody who'd been put to death like a criminal, wouldn't you fear as well? Who wouldn't have been afraid in those circumstances? Who wouldn't have locked themselves away for fear that the same fate might happen to them that had happened to Jesus? And they might have stayed there for a long time until they would felt the coast was clear to make their way 
to somewhere safer in another part of the country. But even then, there would have probably been the sense of fear and dread that somehow those awful things that had happened in Jerusalem to Jesus would catch up with them sooner or later. It would have haunted them. No wonder they locked themselves away. You can be safe behind locked doors. But is it really living? For 10 years, I lived in a little industrial town in the West Midlands, which is called Willenhall. And uh, for decades, it was a place where 80% of the locks and the keys that we use in this country were made. If you look at some of the keys that you use, Yale, Union, Parks, Legs, they would have been made in Willenhall. And at the heart of this town, there were a large number of factories employing hundreds of people. <clears throat> and if you happen to be standing in the middle of the town at 12 o'clock, when the factories came out for their lunchtime, you would have been almost knocked down in the rush of people coming to do their shopping out of the factories. In addition to, to those large factories, there were lots of little workshops in people's back gardens because lots of individuals were self-employed. And uh, solitary individuals ran a collection of businesses in the lock and key industry. And such a large proportion of the population spent their working life over benches filing keys away that they finished up with hunchbacks to the point that Willenhall acquired the nickname of Humpshire. So there I was for 10 years watching all this going on. But the industry had lasted for decades and it was a prosperous business. But when you think about it, the whole lock and key industry is actually based on fear. Because that's why we lock things up, isn't it? Every day I walk around, as many of you do, with a bunch of keys. I have a key to my front door and a key to my back door so that people don't come in and pinch the television or our laptop. There's not much else that's uh, worth pinching in our house. But then I have a key to the shed because somebody might come and pinch my lawnmower. And then I have a key to my bicycle because somebody might... Well, they did pinch my bicycle. Many years ago, I'd been to a church meeting and I came back and the bike wasn't there. And I went to the police station to report it missing, feeling somewhat embarrassed about this. It was in the middle of winter and I'd got a scarf on. So I covered my dog collar with my scarf, went to report this. And the sergeant at the desk solemnly took down all the details, beginning with name, address, date of birth, and then occupation. So I had to confess, Methodist minister. And he looked up from his paperwork and he said, what, they pinched your bike? <laughs> no respect to persons. If they want the bike, they take it. I've got keys to the church office, the church office suite. I've got keys to the room that I share with Peter and, and Mark. Just so that people don't come in and pinch valuable whatever we've got. We're in a vulnerable position here because we're in a building where we want to be open because we're the house of God. We want to welcome all sorts of people, but that does open us to the possibility that people with not very good motives might come in. The lock and key industry is a very profitable industry, but it is all based on fear, on the need to, for people to feel safe. Of course, there are many people in the world who have little to lose and they don't have to lock anything up at all. But is it really safe, is it really living to spend your life behind locked doors? You might keep things safe, you might keep yourself safe, but is it really living?
One of the great pieces of literature that came out of the Second World War was, of course, the diary of Anne Frank. Anne Frank came from a German-Jewish family, and uh, for fear of what might happen to them as a family, she and her sister, her mother and her father, and her father's business partner and his family uh, had to go into hiding. And the hiding place was a set of sealed-off rooms hidden behind a sliding bookcase. And uh, they remained hidden for two years behind locked doors for fear of the Nazis until sadly they were discovered taken to a concentration camp where most of them died. But of course Anne's diaries survived. They'd been living locked away behind doors. They were safe, they thought, but was it really living? It was just existence. But of course, for the disciples of Jesus, life was transformed when Jesus came among them. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus came and found them right in the place where they were hiding. Locked doors could keep everybody else out, but the locked doors couldn't keep Jesus out. And because he'd been raised from the dead, and because uh, the worst that the awful amalgamation of evil forces had done hadn't had the last word, and because he was alive, the disciples came to a conviction that there was no need to be afraid of anything any longer. And so we have that wonderful story in the New Testament that takes several chapters to, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, that takes several chapters to unfold. Uh, we heard just a tiny fraction of it this morning, which uh, all began, of course, with Peter and John, um, the healing of a lame man sitting at the beautiful gate of the temple, uh, and then uh, being uh, brought up before the authorities for speaking and preaching and healing in the name of Jesus, being put into prison for causing a stir. And when the angel of the Lord, a messenger from the Lord, released them from prison, they didn't go away and hide again, as you thought they might have done. They didn't go to find somewhere safe. Where did they go? They went straight back into the temple and what we might describe as the lion's den, where they would obviously be found, and begin, began doing exactly again what they'd been put in prison for. These people who only a few weeks before had locked themselves away behind, door, uh, by, behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They boldly spoke about Jesus in the public arena. They weren't shutting themselves away for fear any longer. They were living life to the full with the assurance that Jesus was with them. You know, there are many ways that we still lock ourselves away out of fear. And when we lock ourselves away through fear, we need to hear the message of this passage this morning, that Jesus is amongst us and will speak those words, peace to us, and that his presence and his peace will be our strength. Let me just point you to briefly to three ways in which we can lock ourselves away for fear. Not necessarily behind locked doors made of wood, but behind safety barriers of one sort or another. Think of our city here in London. During this last year, the city of London has been plagued with violent crime on a pretty horrendous scale. There were 138 homicides last year in this city and already in 2019 over 20 people have been stabbed to death many of them young people and in some areas people are frightened to be out on the streets many parents dread their teenage children 
and young adult children being out. And this is a fear that not only affects people in the night time, but in the daytime as well. Some people are virtually living behind locked doors, fearful of going out in their own communities. And living behind locked doors is not really living existence, but not living. Or think of our nation. Since 2016, uh, Brexit has been a regular topic of conversation, debate and news items. Arguments have raged between politicians and economists and journalists. Work colleagues and family members have been divided on this great subject, sometimes painfully so, painfully to the point that we haven't seen divisions like this since the 1980s when we had the severe divisions in the mining communities in this country. Divisions are painful. They threaten to last a long time. And at the root of so much pain is fear. People of various persuasions have jumped on what we call the Project Fear bandwagon. And it's come from all sides of the argument that if you don't solve the problem in this particular way, then you'll have an awful time. And if you don't solve the problem in this way, you'll have an awful time. It's fear. And fear isn't just there in the minds of ordinary people like ourselves. Fear is affecting those who represent us in Parliament too. We may sometimes think they've not done a very good job of doing what they're supposed to be doing at the moment, but some of them too are locked in fear. And the mental health charity Mind recently wrote to all 650 members of Parliament, offering them and their staff advice on how to cope with Brexit stress. And this was done in response to reports of politicians turning to drink or even hiding in cupboards, literally or metaphorically. We are in danger of locking ourselves behind closed doors, paralyzed into indecision. And living behind locked doors is not really living. Or think of individuals, the third area I just wanted to mention. Individuals who've been scarred in their relationships for life and who've hidden behind locked doors by pulling down the emotional blinds of their life. Some years ago, I had a very close connection with one of our National Children's Homes, as it was called in those days, one of the residential branches of our National Children's Homes. For some months, I got to know staff and children very well. And uh, I remember particularly a nine-year-old girl who was in that home. She was there as a permanent resident. She'd been taken into NCH care when she was three years old. Her mother had um, abandoned her and her father hadn't been on the scene for probably since her birth. She was there, her mother was allowed to visit her, but rarely came. Sometimes she would promise to come, but she hardly ever turned up. And I think what finally got to a member of staff one day was when they were standing in the window with this nine-year-old girl looking out into the, um, towards the front gate, and two women walked up the drive. Mother was expected to visit this day, and the nine-year-old girl turned to the member of staff beside her and said, which of those two women is my mother? 
that girl is etched on my memory because she was somebody who had pulled down the emotional blinds of her life. I don't think I ever saw her laugh. And I don't think I ever saw her cry. She'd sometime, sometime, somehow shut everybody and everything out of her life. She could be difficult and stubborn, but it wasn't hard to understand why. She was protecting herself. She was living behind locked doors. But being behind emotional locked doors isn't living, is it? I wonder whether you identify with any of those scenarios that I've uh, mentioned this morning. Maybe you do. Maybe you have other doors locked in your life that maybe nobody else knows about at all. The good news of Easter is that Jesus Christ is alive. He's with us and he's able to come and find us even where we are behind the doors that we have locked. He knows where we've gone to hide. He knows why we've gone to hide. He knows why we've locked the door. And he's able to come and find us right in the place of our hiding and speak his word of peace to us so that we may be able to live courageously and fearlessly, just as the first apostles did in those months that went by after Easter. And the Gospel writer ends this little episode by telling us, then the disciples were overjoyed, or thrilled, as one translation puts it, when they saw the Lord. This isn't just existence, this is life. Because he lives, we shall live also. Thanks be to God. So let's try and grasp hold of that message afresh as the choir sing to us, come and celebrate, my friends. And then we shall share in a short responsive prayer.